welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Joel Goldstein, who is the author of The White House Vice Presidency, The Path to Significance, Mondale to Biden. I have Joel Goldstein on the phone uh, with me today. Joel, how are you doing? Just great, Heath. Thanks for having me. Yeah, such such a pleasure uh, to talk to you about this incredibly timely book. Before we get to the book and, and why it's so timely, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm uh, the Vincent C. Emil Professor of Law at St. Louis University School of Law. I, I teach courses uh, primarily in constitutional law, and I've written um, uh, about the vice presidency um, for close to 40 years. Some of the book is historical, but a lot of the book is about the more recent political history. Um, I'd like to just start us off with, with that, that older history, some of the older history that is connected to the Constitution. So you begin the book talking about how the vice presidency was viewed in the 19th century, even though much of the book is about uh, the 20th century. So what, what are the indicators to tell us that this was a job that was not viewed as a very good career move way back then? Well, going back to really the beginning of our history, the vice presidency uh, was disparaged. John Adams, our first vice president, uh, said that my country has in its wisdom contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the imagination of man contrived or uh, his invention conceived. I can do neither good nor evil. Um, Daniel Webster, when offered a, uh, a chance to be on the Whig ticket in the 1840s, said, I don't propose to be buried until um, I'm dead. Uh, one could go on and on and on. Um, primarily 19th century vice presidents um, in early in late 18th century vice presidents uh, presided over the Senate. Um, they were chosen independently of the presidential candidate. Um, vice presidents um, during the 19th century um, didn't tend to have much of a political future after the vice presidency, at least after the, the first few, following Martin Van Buren, um, no sitting vice president was elected president um, until 1988 when George H.W. Bush was um, in the 19th century and much of the 20th century. No vice president really other than John Breckinridge after Van Buren even was a serious presidential candidate. Um, the four vice presidents in the in the 19th century who succeeded to the presidency on the death of the president um, uh, didn't win a term of their own. Um, oftentimes, the vice president was a peripheral figure who was at odds with the president, and um, the vice presidency was the end of uh, his political career. Now, uh, by the 20th century, things begin to change. You refer to Richard Nixon's tenure in the position as, quote, accelerating the movement of the vice presidency to the executive uh, branch and the rise of the office. What was happening that precipitated this change? At the beginning of the 20th century, you started to have some more able people who became uh, vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, um, uh, and so forth. Um, and Warren Harding um, invited his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, to, to meet with the cabinet Coolidge had some misgivings, but did, um, and, and that began a, a tradition, although it was interrupted a bit, of the vice president meeting with the cabinet. But really, through the vice presidency of Alvin Barkley, the vice presidency remained primarily a legislative position, 
and the vice president actually spent a lot of his time presiding over the Senate. Um, World War II, the New Deal, the Cold War, all really changed uh, the operation of American government, increased the importance of the presidency, um, increased the importance of having uh, of presidential continuity. Um, and this began to draw the vice presidency into the executive branch. I think really beginning with the vice presidency of Richard Nixon, um, Nixon was uh, ambitious. Uh, Eisenhower included him at formal meetings, used Nixon as a political um, operative, as a spokesperson to do some legislative work and uh, to head some executive branch commissions. Other vice presidents um, during the quarter century, beginning with Nixon's vice presidency between roughly 1953, 1977, um, followed suit. But the office um, during this period, although it really had moved into the executive branch, was was much more important. Much of what the uh, vice president did was peripheral. Uh, vice presidents also often felt themselves really on the outskirts um, and uh, were generally pretty frustrated. And, you know, in the mid-1970s, um, you have this period where Arthur Schlesinger writes a number of articles uh, really calling for the office's office to be abolished, saying that it was a hopeless office, um, an office that was more of a maiming experience than a making experience. Now, much of your book is about Walter Mondale's selection in 1976 and his his innovations to the office. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how Mondale was chosen and, and what did his choice mean for the campaign and later the transition period? Well, I think the, the selection of, of Walter Mondale um, really was the turning point. Jimmy Carter really um, was interested in elevating the vice presidency. Um, he understood that he needed help, um, that he needed somebody with uh, D.C. experience, with experience with Congress. Um, he also um, thought it was immoral to, um, to, to have the, the first successor um, not in the loop. Uh, he was haunted by the experience of Harry Truman, who had been excluded pretty much um, when, during his 82-day vice presidency under FDR. Um, and he thought it was wasteful to uh, not to use a government asset. Um, when he interviewed um, Mondale, the two of them hit it off. Um, Carter wanted to elevate the vice presidency, didn't quite know how to do it. Mondale um, really was very helpful during the campaign. Um, there were a number of polls that indicated that, that his presence on the ticket made a difference to Carter's narrow popular and electoral vote margin. Um, after the election, uh, Carter involved Mondale in the transition. It was the first time a vice president had ever been involved in the um, transition. Mondale met with the people who were being considered for cabinet and other significant positions, helped Carter plan priorities to the administration, worked very closely with them. Carter uh, consistently sent messages that Mondale would be involved. But the thing that was missing was really a vision of the office. Uh, previous vice presidents had thought that the way they could become important was if they took on some government program, some part of the government to run. Uh, but that had proved to be unsuccessful, most recently under the vice presidency of Nelson Rockefeller. Mondale came up with the 
a vision that was about 180 degrees away from the old vision. Mondale's vision was that the way to be significant was not to take on any ongoing responsibility, but rather to be a general across the board advisor to the president and to do things to help the president uh, succeed. And so um, uh, Carter agreed to that vision and they resourced it. Mondale had a weekly private lunch with uh, Carter. He had the right to attend any meeting on Carter's schedule, the right to walk into the Oval Office whenever he wanted. Uh, he got all the paper flow that went to uh, President Carter. His staff was involved. And this really and 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 Carter moved him into the white into the west wing of the office, gave him an office um, only steps away from the Oval Office, right between the chief of staff and the uh, the effective chief of staff and the national security advisor, and really brought Mondale into the uh, it, presidency in an integral way. Um, and, and this really allowed the Mondale vice presidency to be very much part of the inner circle of the Carter presidency. Now, this Mondale uh, vision that you talk about is expressed through this famous memorandum that's, that's shared and agreed upon by, by President Carter, ultimately by President Carter. This, this, uh, this memo shows up again in the future. I wonder if you could talk about how uh, Al Gore uh, used the Mondale precedent in very particular terms to make his case for uh, a prominent role in the Clinton administration. Well, I, um, uh, Al Gore spoke to um, to former Vice President Mondale and some of uh, Mondale's um, close advisors, Dick Moe, um, and, and Al Gore's chief of staff, uh, Roy Neal, uh, spoke to people like Dick Moe and Mike Berman, who were closely associated with with, um, w- with Vice President Mondale, and um, they basically talked to uh, Governor Clinton and to um, to uh, Mac McClarty, who was his chief of staff, um, about the Mondale experience. As did Warren Christopher, who was really directing the. Um, the, the 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 Clinton transition and who directed the Clinton vice presidential search. So Clinton was predisposed to having an involved vice presidency. Um, they encouraged um, him to model it after the Mondale vice presidency, and really through meetings between McClarty and Neal and Clinton and um, and Gore, uh, that was achieved. And in fact, um, you know there was, there was an episode during the transition when. When Dick Moe um, talked to um, Vice President-elect Gore and talked to him about to him about the importance of two admonitions that uh, that President Carter had given to his staff to always treat a request for from Vice President Mondale as a request from the president and not to undercut Mondale if they valued working at the White House and Gore. Um, took Moe over to where um, President-elect Clinton was talking and said to him, um, there's something that I want you to hear from, from Dick Moe, and Dick Moe repeated it to uh, President-elect Clinton. So the, the, the Gore um, vice presidency was very much modeled after the Mondale um, vice presidency. But, you know, to a, a great extent, really, George H.W. Bush um, expressed his view that the Mondale model had been very successful. And he, too, said that that they were trying to imitate the Mondale model. And then he passed on a similar 
uh, arrangement uh, when he became president and Dan Quayle was his vice president. Now, what, what, we, what many people understand about the vice presidency um, more recently is connected to the, the role that Dick Cheney played in, in the office. And I think many would sort of from a distance say that the, he played this unusually significant role. Is that correct? Um, what does your research say about how, how Cheney uh, was involved in, 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 in changing the stature of the position? And was he as innovative as, as we have uh, come to understand? Well, I think that um, Vice President Cheney was clearly um, very important and, and, and innovative um, in, in a few ways. I mean, whereas in the past, vice presidents had been ambitious to be president. And really in the period before Mondale, um, especially, but even extending through that period, part of the lure of being vice president was is a stepping stone to a presidential nomination or to the presidency. But when Cheney took on the um, the uh, vice presidency, he really uh, he had pretty much issued a Sherman statement that he wasn't issue, interested in running for president. He was interested in being vice president so he could be vice president. So he was really the first of the unambitious vice presidents, which in a sense was a new model. Um, he also began his service as vice president with a pre-existing relationship with um, with President Bush. He had directed the vice presidential search. He had directed the transition. He had worked for President Bush's uh, father as Secretary of Defense. Um, really unique among the recent um, vice presidents, he had a, a pre-existing relationship with the president and an experience of having worked with him. Um, and having run the transition, he was able really to stock the administration with people who um, um, who he knew, who were sympathetic to him, or who felt that he had played a role in achieving in them achieving their positions. So he started off with uh, a number of assets. Uh, President Bush relied on him in the early period of the administration, and 9/11 really brought um, Vice President Cheney's strengths and his expertise in national security. To the four, I think that so he was very important. I think his his role was overstated by some during the first term. I don't think he ever was the president. He he was never the co-president, but he was an extremely influential vice president. I think he, his influence tended to decline during the second term um, as President Bush felt some of the consequences of some of the advice that Vice President Cheney had given. And as President Bush, I think, saw some of the risks of relying on somebody who tended not to um, have um, a, a very uh, acute political antenna. Um, and so in the second term, Vice President Cheney was certainly very involved. He was at the meetings. He was somebody that President Bush listened to. But President Bush oftentimes on important matters to the vice president um, decided differently. And of course, the second term president tends to be more competent than in the first term. And I think President Bush knew the job better in the second term, was more confident and uh, felt more comfortable being independent in the second term. Now, we're recording this amidst the selection of this year's candidates for vice president, this term's uh, selection. Have the campaigns approached uh, this term's selection in the same way as previous uh, has been done previously? 
or, or do we see some innovations from the past, either in who's being considered or the way in which they're approaching this? I think in many ways they're approaching the selection in ways that are similar to the institutions regarding vice presidential selection that, that really also began around 1976. Um, the presidential nominations were uh, clinched um, relatively um, early so that there was a lengthy period where the vice presidential choice became the main political story. On both sides, there was a uh, vetting operation um, that was um, introduced that involved on both sides people who were uh, experienced vice presidential uh, vetters. Um, the, on both sides, they have um, done some um, events with the leading vice presidential contenders, some public events to, to test chemistry and to see how the vice presidential candidates um, play out. So there certainly are areas of continuity. Um, I think that uh, there have been some differences um, um, on the Republican side this time. A number of the, um, the sort of the marquee figures in the Republican Party uh, indicated pretty strongly that they weren't interested in being on the running on, on the ticket with Mr. Trump. And so his pool um, from which to choose from was shallower than is generally the case. Um, the um, um, I, I think on both sides, um, the um, emphasis has been away from choosing somebody from a particular state. Um, although um, sometimes pundits talk as if uh, vice presidential candidates are chosen to carry a particular swing state, um, presidential candidates haven't really followed that approach in a number of years. It's almost never followed. And in fact, if you look at the behavior of presidential candidates, they often pick people from small states, from safe states, um, and often do so uh, in preference to people from large uh, electorally rich states. Yeah, the, the book is so timely and so interesting. The title again is The White House Vice Presidency, The Path to Significance, Mondale to Biden. The book is published this year by University Press of Kansas. Again, the author is Joel Goldstein. Joel, thank you so much for your time today. Heath, I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.